Our reading this evening is 1 Thessalonians and chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 3, and we commence at verse 1. <clears throat> Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labour be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And as ever, we trust that the Lord will add his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Well, this evening we are continuing our new studies in Paul's two epistles to the Thessalonians. And we've already considered the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians. And this evening we shall be considering the whole of chapter 3. We have seen in our previous studies that the city of Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia, an area that would now equate, we think, to northern Greece. And Paul and some companions spent a relatively short time in Thessalonica preaching the gospel of grace, God's grace. And there were some who had trusted in Christ and were going on in the faith despite some very stiff opposition. And not only had some trusted in Christ, but their witness had been such that their faith was spoken of throughout Greece and beyond. 
It was probably whilst Paul was in Corinth that he received tidings from Timothy that prompted him to write his first epistle to the saints at Thessalonica, addressing the problems which had reportedly arisen in the church there. And later, receiving reports of further or continuing problems in that fellowship, Paul was led, after just a brief interlude, to write his second epistle to the church. And it appears that the main problem that had arisen amongst the saints at Thessalonica was all to do with the Lord's return. Namely, when it would be, and also how to prepare for it. Now, our last study consisted mainly of seeing the Apostle Paul defending himself and his companions against the false allegations of those Thessalonian Jews who claimed that Paul and his party no longer cared about those who had been converted under their ministry. But we saw that Paul was very much concerned about them. And we saw this in the last verses of our last study, which read thus. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoured the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come to you, unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Well, this evening, as I've said already, we shall be considering the whole of chapter 3. And so we begin with verse 1, which reads thus. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Here we have an example of what has become known as the royal we, which was attributed to Queen Victoria who is reported to have used it to convey that she was not amused. But Paul was stating here that when he could refrain no longer, he thought it best that he should remain by himself at Athens, whilst Timothy went to see how the saints at Thessalonica were bearing up. Paul couldn't wait any longer to get up-to-date news of those saints at Thessalonica, and although he would rather not have been left by himself at Athens, if this was the price to be paid to obtain news, then he was prepared to pay that price. Now we know from Acts chapter 17 and verse 15 that Paul had been conducted to Athens by friends, having had similar problems at Berea that he'd had at Thessalonica, namely opposition from those Jews who wanted to hinder the spreading of the gospel of God's grace. And verse 14 of Acts chapter 17 records how Silas and Timothy remained at Berea for a time. Verse 15 records that once at Athens, Paul sent a message to them to join him at Athens as soon as possible. And then verse 16 records how whilst Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he saw that the whole city was given over to idolatry. And the rest of Acts 17 recalls 
Paul's dealings with the Athenians, including that famous episode at Mars Hill where Paul preached the gospel to those who were gathered there. And then verse 1 of Acts 18 tells us that after some time, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Now you may have noticed that in verses 16 to 34 of Acts chapter 17, no mention is made of Silas and Timothy having joined Paul there. But it's obvious from the passage that we're studying this evening that they did, or at least that Timothy did, for in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 2, we see how Paul, and I quote, sent Timotheus, our brother, a minister of God, and our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Later on in Acts 18, we see from verse 5 that both Silas and Timothy joined Paul in Corinth after returning from Macedonia, where we know Thessalonica was situated. So it is possible, but not certain, that Silas did accompany Timothy when he was sent there by Paul. Now, notice carefully how Paul described Timothy as we find it recorded in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 3. He's described firstly as a brother, then as a minister of God, and finally as a fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ. Although we know that Paul regarded Timothy as one of his sons in the faith, no doubt in view of his part in Timothy's salvation, yet he was also Paul's brother in the faith, even as all believers are brothers and sisters in the faith. We are all brethren. Hopefully we are reminded of this relationship whenever we meet up with believers from other fellowships. Can we say that there is a strong family bond? And Timothy was a minister of God. He was one of God's ministers, someone who had been set aside to minister the word of God, someone who was in God's service. Now, not all those who would describe themselves as God's ministers are God's ministers. If you consider those many men employed in places of worship who do not believe the Bible, who therefore spread error, how can such men be God's ministers. How many churches in our land are led by God's true ministers? And there may even be true believers in the ministry who were never called to the ministry, who were mistaken as to their calling. How thankful we should be if we are led by ministers of God. And what about that title of fellow labourer? Who amongst us could be described as such? Elsewhere in the scriptures, in Paul's epistle to the Philippians, we see him refer there to someone as a true yoke fellow. And those terms, fellow labourer and yoke fellow, both highlight the togetherness of those working in God's service. Praise God that we are not often required to labour unaccompanied, for God has seen fit to provide us with companions in our labours for him. And we see from the end of verse 2 of this evening's study passage that Timothy was sent by Paul 
to the saints at Thessalonica for a purpose, namely to establish them and to comfort them concerning their faith. Those saints at Thessalonica were under attack and it was Timothy's task to establish or strengthen them in their faith and to comfort them by showing them that the persecution that they were now undergoing was to be expected. In fact, it would have been unusual if they hadn't been experiencing persecution. You see, we must always bear in mind what we're told in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, that, and I quote, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. As sure as night follows day, it will be the Christian's experience that if they live godly lives, then they will come under attack. The world is no lover of godliness because those who seek to live godly lives are by their very mode of life, condemning those amongst whom they live. And so this question arises for us. Are we in any way suffering for our faith, even if only on a small scale? I ask this question because it may be that some of us hide our light under a bushel, not speaking up for the Lord when we are given the opportunity so to do. And could that be considered equivalent to denying the Lord that bought us? Paul wanted Timothy to explain to the saints at Thessalonica they were to expect affliction, that they were appointed to it. He wrote this, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. It was vital that the Thessalonian saints understood that they were not alone in their afflictions. We are appointed thereunto, was what Paul wrote. And Paul had told them this when he had been, been amongst them. For verse 4 of our study passage reads thus, For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. Now, in the present time in this country, we are not suffering for our faith as believers in other parts of the world may be suffering. We might say that we have it relatively easy, so to speak, but we need to be aware that this could change. When we consider the changes in society that are happening in our own day, it may, long, may not be long before believers are punished just for praying. If people can be prosecuted for praying silently in the streets, how long will it be before they are prosecuted for praying in their homes or in churches? And with regard to believers being told that they may be required to suffer for their faith, this is why we must be honest when telling people what the Christian life entails. There have been people who have taught that whenever someone becomes a Christian, then all their troubles are going to be over, that their lives thereafter will be all sweetness and light. But is this not to fly in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture? We need to be honest with people, as Paul was when he was with those new converts at Thessalonica. But Paul knew that not everyone copes with persecution, that there would be 
those who would fall away when persecution arose. And we're clearly taught about this in the parable of the sower and the seed, are we not? And this is why Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see who was still going on with the Lord. He wrote this, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labour be in vain. When Paul couldn't bear it any longer, Timothy was dispatched to Thessalonica to see who had remained steadfast in their faith and who had fallen away, since he knew that the devil would seek to tempt new converts to depart from the faith. And if that had happened, then it might seem that the evangelist's work would have served no purpose, seeming to have been in vain. You can perhaps imagine what was going through Paul's mind as he awaited Timothy's return. But we can perhaps also imagine his joy when Timothy returned with the news that those new converts at Thessalonica were going on with the Lord. And also that the converts were as desirous of seeing Paul again as he was of seeing them again. He wrote this, But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Paul and his companions weren't at Thessalonica for very long, but under God, they had been instrumental in changing the lives of those Thessalonian converts forever. For the gospel message that was preached there had eternal consequences and this is something for us to consider is it not since our witness to others whether in preaching the gospel or by living godly lives or both will have a lasting effect on those whom we encounter and we see this confirmed in the second letter to the Corinthians Paul's second letter chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16, which read as follows. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savour of death unto death, and to the other the savour of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Now, most of you will have heard that expression, to breathe a sigh of relief. And this describes the feeling that people have when, having feared the worst, as it were, they realise that all their fears were unfounded. I imagine that we've all experienced this to some degree or another, and Paul was no exception. On hearing good news from Timothy, he was able to write these words. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction, and distress by your faith or because of your faith. It was in hearing of the faith of the converts that Paul rejoiced in hearing that they were still walking with the Lord despite the opposition that they had encountered. No doubt the tempter, the devil had attacked their faith, but by the grace of God they, have, they had overcome that attack. Perhaps a few had fallen away since this will often be the case, but the majority were persevering. Now, some of us might be involved in evangelism, some more than others, but we need to remember 
that it became Paul's main purpose in life after his wonderful conversion. He was thus determined to preach the gospel wherever he went. And he saw many who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in various places on his missionary journeys. And having seen so many make professions of faith in so many places, he had a great concern for them. Those whom he had begotten in the faith, as it were. His concern for them could therefore possibly be compared with the care that any parent has for their children. If a parent hasn't seen their child for some time, then it's only natural that they would be concerned for their well-being. Are, are they safe and well? Are they coping in whatever situation they're in? When, when might we, we hear from them next? Well, Paul had now received news of those whom he had begotten in the faith, and we see from what he wrote that it had, as it were, a rejuvenating effect on him and on those with him. He wrote these words, For now we live, we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. As I've just said, the news from Thessalonica had a rejuvenating effect. Now we live was how Paul described it. It was a great boost to Paul and those with him to hear that the converts at Thessalonica had remained steadfast in their faith. Some commentators have suggested that it may have been the case that if those who had professed faith in Thessalonica had not gone on with the Lord, then it would have boded ill for all Paul's work in Macedonia and Achaia. And thus the news of the perseverance of the converts in Thessalonica would have greatly encouraged Paul to press on with his work. Now, we have to acknowledge that the perseverance of the converts in Thessalonica, indeed the perseverance of saints anywhere in the world, was only by the grace of God. You know, if it were not for the grace of God, we would all fall away in times of testing. And therefore, it is only fitting that when we hear of those who have persevered, that we give all the glory to God. And this is why Paul wrote those words, which we have in verse 9 of our study passage, For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. We see this in Psalm 92 and verse 1, do we not, which reads thus, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. Could it be said of us that we sing praises to God's name more often than we offer thanks to him? How can we remedy this? Now, Notice that Paul wrote about joy in his rhetorical question. What thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy, for your sakes before our God? Paul and those who assisted him were overjoyed on hearing as to how the converts at Thessalonica were thriving. In a manner of speaking, it gave them a new lease of life and it gave them a renewed desire to see them again and to help them to make progress in their Christian lives. We see that Paul wrote of how he and those with him, and I quote, were night and day praying exceedingly 
that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Night and day, praying exceedingly. What do we make of that? Well, I don't think it means that Paul and those with him were praying all day and all night, but I do think that it means they were praying at times during the day and at times during the night. And because we are told that they were praying exceedingly, surely this means that they were praying often. That Greek word translated here as exceedingly could also have been translated as excessively or as extravagantly. And I wonder if this could ever be said of our own prayer times. Now notice that Paul, as well as telling the new saints at Thessalonica that he was desirous of seeing them again, also tells them that he would welcome the opportunity to help them to make progress as believers. For he told them that he would like to, and I quote, perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now by writing of that which is lacking, Paul wasn't in any way seeking to criticise the new converts. He was more merely drawing their attention to the fact that they were new converts and that as such they would benefit from further teaching about the Christian faith and living the Christian lives. We know from elsewhere in the scriptures that Paul describes some new believers as babes in Christ and as to how they could only be fed with spiritual milk rather than spiritual meat. In that instance, it was because of carnality or worldliness, which was not likely to have been the case at Thessalonica. But the same principle would have applied. New converts have much to learn, and they need sound teachers to help them make progress. We have noted previously that Paul was aware of problems that had arisen at Thessalonica to do with the Lord's return, namely when it would be and how to prepare for it. And it may be that they had, had this in mind in particular when he wrote about that which was lacking in the faith of the new converts. That would be my view, but we can't be dogmatic about it. But now we come to the final three verses of our study passage, verses 11 to 13, which read thus. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, would you regard those words as a petition or a prayer or both? I ask this because commentators do not agree on this. One well-known commentator, Hendrickson, is on record as saying that because God is not directly addressed here, it cannot be regarded as a prayer. But I, I can't agree with him, and you may not either. The first thing to note in Paul's petition or prayer is the request that God would direct him and his companions to the Thessalonian saints. And we have seen previously that the Greek word employed here means to, to make a straight path, all obstacles being removed. Paul desired to see those Thessalonian converts again. And we cannot say for sure if that ever happened. 
However, Acts chapter 20 and verses 1 and 2 read thus. That's Acts 20, verses 1 and 2 read thus. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And therefore it's perfectly possible that Paul did visit Thessalonica again. But before we move on, there's something interesting for us to know in respect of the Greek wording in verse 11 of the passage we're studying. When Paul wrote, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, he used the verb direct in the singular, indicating the unity of God the Father and God the Son, the first two persons of the Trinity. It's always worthwhile noting occasions in the scriptures where the deity of the Lord Jesus is confirmed, since this is so often under attack. And when Paul wrote, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, he was once more drawing attention to the tremendous importance of the love that should exist between believers. Indeed, it is a hallmark, is it not, of the believer that they love the brethren. 1 John 3 verse 14 reads thus, We know that we are passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. And the whole of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is about that agape love. And so it behoves us to ask ourselves, do we truly love the brethren? Not just in words, but in deeds also. Genuine love manifests itself in deeds, in what we do, as opposed to what we might just say. And notice particularly that Paul writes about how we should abound in love towards one another and toward all men. Now the Lord Jesus spoke about how our love shouldn't be confined to just those who love us, but to all, even to those who may ill-treat us. Verses 43 to 48 of Matthew chapter 5 read thus, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And as you'll know, those words were from the Sermon on the Mount. Now the final verse we consider in this evening reads thus. To the end, 
He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, in our next study, we shall be considering the second coming of the Lord Jesus in more detail. In particular, what we're told from verses 13 to 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so I won't be dealing over much with that this evening. Instead, I'd like us to conclude our study this evening by considering briefly what Paul meant when he wrote about how believers should be found unblameable in holiness before God at the Saviour's coming. We do not know when the Lord Jesus will return, whether it will be in our lifetimes or thereafter, but we are to be ready against that day. And a parable about this need to be ready is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 35 to 40. That's Luke 12, verses 35 to 40. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Now being ready need not mean that we are to be like soldiers on the parade ground, all standing to attention, all immaculately turned out with our best uniform on, although that's not altogether a bad analogy. You see, we may be doing all manner of things if we are here and alive when the Lord returns. But the important thing is this. Whatever we are doing, we ought not to be ashamed of what we are doing. We are to be unblameable, meaning that there should be no blame attached to what we are doing, no sin involved in it. We should be living in a holy and godly fashion, ever aware that we are imperfect in ourselves, but perfectly holy in the sight of God because he views us as in Christ. We should be seeking to live lives that are pleasing to our Saviour. And we trust that the Lord will help us to do this. So we have come to an end of our consideration of this third chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And it seems to me that the overriding message of this chapter is the concern that believers should have for the welfare of other believers, not just for those in our own fellowships, but in other fellowships as well. And not only for those in our own country, but for those elsewhere in the world as well. And so I trust that we will all bear that in mind in future days, both practically and in prayer. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers 
at gmail.com. That's grace to seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.com. Thank you.